You're listening to episode 82 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara, joined by special guest Sarah Sanchez, and as camp resumes, well, chaos ensues. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging out with us again on this Wednesday. Of course, we're recording this on Tuesday evening. And as quickly as things change right now in, I was going to say the baseball world, but really it's just the world at large. Who knows how much of this will still be relevant by the time you listen to it on Wednesday. But thanks for listening anyway. Alex Crisofoli is out this evening and will not be joining me. So instead, I have decided to make this sort of a rivalry week podcast, I guess, and bring in a a friend from the enemy lines, I guess, and Sarah Sanchez, who is maybe a new name, a new voice to some of you listening to this podcast, but she writes for Bleed Cubby Blue and is the co-host of Cup of Cubby Blue. If you're interested in diving into the world of the Chicago Cubs. But also, in this case, it felt like a great opportunity to just kind of talk about how this is affecting baseball teams even regionally and and within the realm of our, our normal circles in such an abnormal circumstance. So, Sarah, thank you for joining me for this show. And I don't even know what else to say, except hopefully you're good and safe and things are... <laughs> at least mildly in control in your part of the world. Hey, Tara, thanks so much for having me. I love the show. I'm a huge fan of you, although obviously not the Cardinals. Um, <laughs> I'm okay. I. It's weird. I have been working from home for going on 120 days now and keeping a diary of life without baseball because that's what the world is. Um And honestly, just kind of observing things in and around my neighborhood. I live about five blocks from Wrigley Field. So I I live in a neighborhood that is built to revolve around the sport. And there hasn't been baseball until this week in any way, shape, or form. And so there's a lot going on here that is interesting. There's a lot going on that is new. But can I just say, you know, you mentioned the rivalry. And I am generally all for Cubs versus Cardinals, Chicago versus St. Louis. We can talk about Dexter Fowler's... uh, apparently new pizza tanks (laughs) later on if you want. But at least today, I was sort of thinking about this more from the perspective of I was worried about the Cardinals. Like, honest to God, I when I heard that y'all had to cancel practice yesterday because tests weren't back and then they were delayed today, as the Cubs were announcing that their practice was going to be delayed because their tests weren't back, I was just kind of like, what are we even doing right now? Yeah, it's sort of bizarro world for everybody on so many levels, including as it relates to rivalries and how we kind of look at other teams. It's true, though. I mean, you see all of the news from these various camps and how teams are handling things, which let's be honest, there's there's no baseline for what to do with any of this right now. And the directives are very sort of loose and and not particularly helpful. And then all of a sudden you start seeing these teams that are canceling things, but they can't really say why, or guys just aren't showing up and they can't announce what's going on. Or, you know, there's just so much that's really veiled right now. And it is, it's, it's disconcerting to say the least when these things, this circumstance feels like it could get so out of hand so quickly to just have this very unsettling lack of information and seeing teams just shutting it down or pushing pause at least until they can get some clarity. And we can talk more about the reasons for that as we go along, but it is weird. It is a strange sensation to be particularly concerned about the, uh, the, the well-being of some of these teams that we're normally not too concerned about to say the least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, first off props to the teams that shut it down. So the thing that most jumped out to me over the last couple of days, and I know you've been watching this really carefully too, there were a lot of teams that had delays and there were, I would say 80% of those teams shut it down, right? So the athletics had a delay, they didn't practice. The nationals had a delay. They not only didn't practice, Mike Rizzo was out there like, MLB, you have to do better. (laughs) Uh, The Astros had a delay. They didn't practice, right? The Angels had a delay and they made practice optional, which... Mm. 
blew my mind. And I thought that was going to be the worst thing that happened yesterday. And then it came out that the Yankees didn't have the testers show up on Sunday. So they tested themselves. And Ken Rosenthal tweeted that what that meant was that they spit into some cups and then they went and played. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) What is this testing protocol that we have? We live in a pandemic. We live in a pandemic where there is a disease that is really dangerous. Like it's obviously more dangerous if you're older, but it's also pretty dangerous for people who are younger and we don't know what the long-term effects of that are. And the Yankees were just like, we're going to spit in some cups and play. (laughs) Yeah. It's wild how inconsistent all of this has been. And, and honestly, let's be real. I know you and I have had a chance to talk about this, not on any sort of podcast platform, just in group chats and things of that nature. But like, we're not particularly surprised that this isn't going well. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of direction from the get-go. And even if you had a chance to to see what the protocols were that were in place, there was a lot of, you figure it out as a team and let us know what you're going to do. And that's not a great starting point, I don't think, when a lot of these teams maybe aren't in a position to have all the information to know the best way to handle this, right? This is new for everyone. So to kind of just say, uh, we don't really know, you figure it out, seems like a recipe for disaster. And that's kind of what we've seen this week. Now, it seems to stem from this delay in delivering the samples to the lab in Utah and getting results back from there. The holiday weekend may have played into that, which seems like a thing someone should have thought about. But nonetheless, not a great start. (laughs) Not a great start to prove to teams, to players, to fans that this is something that can actually work. So in my non-baseball world, I I plan events and I plan, you know, sometimes smaller events, sometimes larger events, but I have a lot of experience with event planning. And we couldn't get the test because of the 4th of July is one of the worst excuses I've ever heard. <laughs> there, you plan around the 4th of July. You know the yeah. 4th of July is happening. So I am so concerned because if the 4th of July was this big of a hiccup, and, and let's be really clear what happened here. To my knowledge, at least seven teams have been impacted so far by the delays on the 4th of July due to not getting their test back in time, not getting their kits delivered, or not having testers show up. Seven out of 30 teams seems like a lot to me. (laughs) And you knew this was coming. What happens when the rules change in Florida, or the rules change in Arizona, or the rules change in California, and all of a sudden you have to change the entire season on the fly? I am really concerned that MLB has not thought this through properly. And look, I understand this is really hard. Nobody knows what to do. The NBA is going to try to play in a bubble. That bubble clearly already has problems because the first MLS soccer game got canceled a few hours ago before we started recording this. It clearly is a very difficult situation in which to plan and play a sports season. So I'm not judging anyone. This is a hard challenge to deal with. But if you can't get the testing right, on a holiday weekend that you knew was coming, that was the start date that you set for yourself. I'm not entirely sure how we have a season here. The testing protocol is the foundation on which this season is built. If the testing protocol doesn't work, the season is not going to happen. And right now it kind of looks like a house of cards. Yeah, it really does. And it's it's the thing that I think a lot of people were concerned about in trying to put together just the logistics of making this work as quickly as they did, right? We spent a lot of time hearing about and arguing about and talking about the financial side of this agreement. Far less time was spent kind of fleshing out the health and safety protocols from a public standpoint, right? I want to be clear. We don't know all the conversations that were happening behind the scenes that were not made public, that were not conveniently leaked to reporters to share with the world. So I'm not saying that those conversations didn't happen, but it seems very apparent that not enough of those conversations happened, or at least there was not enough time then given to implement those 
preferred strategies. And so that's why it's not a huge surprise. Now, I also want to say it's not a big surprise that we're seeing positive tests from teams across the league, right? That was something that we all kind of knew was going to happen. That's why the intake screening was so important to get everyone tested, figure out who had a reason to stay away until they could get negative tests back and not create a problem from the get-go. That to me is not surprising at all. To see that, to see that, I mean, there was that very early report that tried to make it sound like the, (laughs) the positive case number was very low and then it was became very apparent that was a very small number of tests because a bunch of teams still had not even been able to get their tests sent to the lab. So very misleading, also not surprising. But all of that to say, seeing positive test results come back, seeing guys have to be quarantined, seeing them kind of get a baseline for who's healthy and who isn't, not surprising. To me, that was like, that's the way we have to go about doing this in order to get this thing up and running. But to me, the bigger question was always, okay, what happens next? And that's the stage we're in right now where it's like, okay, you kind of screwed up that first part. (laughs) So I have no confidence in the what happens next part of this because everyone seems to have a different answer to that question. For the Cardinals, you mentioned they even just Tuesday morning, right? Tuesday morning, 715 workout scheduled for 11 o'clock. That text message was sent out to the media. 15 minutes later, a follow up text message was sent that postponed that workout indefinitely. Nine hours later, there was still no real information about what was going on or what wasn't, although we can all kind of surmise what's happening. It's not that hard to figure out at this point. Then the workout was scheduled for six o'clock on Tuesday night. And all of a sudden, there were players who were on the field who hadn't been at camp yet. They were told that all the test results they had back were negative. That doesn't mean they got all the test results back. Just the ones they did get were negative. And there were also new players who hadn't even been announced as part of the player pool (laughs) who were suddenly on the field and participating in live BP today. So just a very weird sequence of events that's hard to keep track of that makes all of this feel like just absolute chaos that no one has any idea what to do with. Yeah, I was following the Cardinal situation pretty closely today because I've written a couple of articles looking at the delays. And I I feel like these delays are really something MLB has to get a handle on. If they can't get a handle on the delays that are happening right now, they can't have a season. So if anybody wants to see baseball at the end of July, July 23rd, 24th, 25th, that whole MLB show that should have been donated, that time should have been dedicated to telling us what was going to happen with testing Because you can't get to a schedule if you can't get the testing part right. But I mean, I was following Cardinals Twitter pretty closely this morning. And the tweet that really just made me stop in my tracks, I think Mark Saxon had something like, Mm, yeah, the players don't know what's going on. Yeah. That is a red flag to me. Like the media clearly doesn't know and the players don't know means that the they don't have a message. They just haven't received the information they need to and they're all just kind of in a holding pattern. And I, that is a really bad situation. If nobody has an idea of the workout can start at two, the workout can start at six. Where were the players? Were they at home? Were they waiting at the ballpark? Were they waiting in their cars? Like I'm, I'm dead serious here. I, I want to know what the situation is. Were they separate from each other? It doesn't really seem like any team has a great handle on this. And while I was reflecting on Saxon's tweet and like, wow, I don't know what's going on in St. Louis, uh, PJ Mooney, who covers the Cubs for The Athletic, was like, and the Cubs have postponed their workout for the day because of testing delays. I was just like, what is even going on under normal circumstances? You know, I might, I hate to say this, but it's, Y'all are Cardinals fans. I know you'll appreciate this. Like, under normal circumstances, if I learned that the Cardinals missed a day of workouts while the Cubs were working out, I might be kind of like, tiny inner cheer. I couldn't even (laughs) feel that today. I was just, I was just worried about the players. I was worried about the players. I thought the chaos was bad. The fact that MLB and the teams clearly don't seem to know what is going on. And honestly, listening to Mike Rizzo from the Nationals and... and Rob Manfred's office at MLB go back and forth at each other yesterday. I believe Rob Manfred said that Mike Rizzo was being insubordinate for canceling practice Mm -hmm. and saying that the situation was unacceptable. 
that's a red flag to me. The owners in the commissioner's office did not break ranks for one second over salaries. Yeah. They clearly have no idea what is going on with testing. Yeah. And you're right. It is a complicated thing that there are a lot of layers to. So it's going to probably look a little messy until they figure it out. The problem is until they figure it out means that there are potentially lives being put at risk unnecessarily, which is why this is so significant. Now, I will say, as far as the Cardinals are concerned, a lack of communication with the players is not new. (laughs) This is not a new problem. In fact, it's something that I tend to harp on quite a bit. So while that might be a a bit disturbing in the current situation, not exactly a new problem. So, you know, there is that to maybe ease the, the, uh, concern there from the Cardinals front office. But you're right. To me, it just means that no one knows what's going on, right? When there's no information available, the Cardinals are really good at kind of keeping a tight lid on things that they don't want people to know about. So if they don't want you to know, they're not going to share it. And there's not really anyone that's going to dig far enough to get it. Um, But the, the players not knowing, yeah, like I said, while it's not particularly uncommon in St. Louis for that to be the case. Still not a great situation to put them in, in this particular situation. And, you know, I think you, you mentioned one team missing a day of, of workouts when another team doesn't, or not knowing how long you kind of have to keep everybody on pause until you can move forward. That's when you talk about like, if we can think beyond this, summer camp or whatever we're calling it and get to any version of real baseball, like that's a significant amount of time in this very condensed schedule. So you're looking at teams that are doing everything they can to speed up the process of getting guys ready to play. And then you're having to stop it again in order to wait for the testing procedure to be sorted out in, in the meantime, you've got guys who don't quite know what to do with themselves. And like, like you said, that's hard on all of these teams. It's hardest on the ones that obviously have had the biggest challenge getting test results back. But I can't imagine the coaching staff trying to figure out what to do in this situation to make the most of the time that they have, but be smart about it and keep guys separated. They're not all working together and they're all trying to... It just, I mean... It's exhausting thinking about it, much less actually having to be the one making those decisions. There's just a lot more at stake right now. Well, and I actually, one of the questions I have, and I'm not sure you have an answer or anyone does at this moment in time, but, you know, if somebody is out there listening who can get us an answer, that would be really cool. I kind (laughs) of want to know who is making these decisions. Right. Because when I saw the Angels tweet yesterday where they're like, we're delayed, we don't have tests. And then like six hours later, they were like, Practice is optional. It had me wondering who made practice optional and who waited on that decision. Is that a front office decision? Is that an ownership decision? Did Joe Madden make that decision? It's really unclear who's making those decisions. And it sort of seems like there's no process for it, (laughs) that like teams can do whatever they want. Yeah, And that's a that's a really dangerous position because. Baseball is a game of getting a competitive edge, right? We saw that with the whole Astros, Red Sox, Mm -hmm. stealing scandal. That's what that's all about, is that you can get a tiny competitive edge that you can then generate a lead on within your division. Well, if you can get a competitive edge by practicing through not having your tests, what stops teams from doing that right now? Just their conscience. I mean, I look, I love the Cubs more than anything in the world. I think they're outstanding. Not entirely sure I want players' health to rest on the conscience of whoever <laughs> is making that decision. And the process yeah. is really not transparent right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we all have good reason to be skeptical of the morality of decision making in baseball these days. It's not exactly something that seems to rank as a high priority for a lot of uh, a lot of people in the position to make those decisions. So I think that's totally fair. I also think that there's just this sense of, well, okay. I don't know if we really want to go there because it seems like a, such a hot it. topic, but the the whole conversation around masks or no masks, right? And this idea that if you want to, then do it. If you don't want to, then don't tell anyone else what to do. That's what this kind of feels like as far as the decision-making process for 
how teams operate within the sort of very general boundaries of this health and safety protocol. It's like, if you want to, then fine. That's what my mind went to when you're talking about the angels practice being optional. Well, two things. One, that's not how this works. <laughs> the contracting of a, a virus isn't something that you just get to decide. Do I feel like getting COVID-19 today or do I not? I mean, it's not an optional thing. So that's just a bizarre way to think about it. Much like I think about the whole mask situation is that it, okay, technically, yes, it's optional. <laughs> but is, is, that the, is that the right choice? Is that the, do we trust people around us enough for that to be the right choice when we're in a group of people anywhere? And, you know, I said this last week on the show with Alex, I've said it a couple times since then, really, all of this comes down to can players trust their teammates to do the right thing? And can teams trust Major League Baseball to do the right thing on their end and hold up their side of this bargain? And uh, that that trust factor, man, I don't, there are not a lot of people that I would trust with that kind of risk in my life. Okay, so I want to come back to the mask thing in a second, because I actually think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on with baseball and masks at the moment, but I'm gonna put a pin in that. Because the other thing that jumps out to me with the whole optional practice thing is who practice is then optional for. Mm, Because for Mike Trout, that practice is optional. He's going to make a lot of money. He's already banked a lot of money. And he can actually choose to show up or not. But for a player who's on the bubble, who like this is their shot, maybe they were going to be in AAA this year. Maybe they just got bumped to the 60-man roster and they're trying to like show off what they have. That practice is not optional. (laughs) (sighs) Optional means different things at different stages and where you are. Mm -hmm. And I am really worried that the ability to opt out in the 2020 season is not something that is equally accessible to all players. And I don't look, that's true in all of America. (laughs) Like we are a capitalist (laughs) society. Like some people have more than others. Like some people can work from home. Some people can't like, we're not going to solve all of that on this podcast or probably in our lifetimes. But when you say a practice is optional at the start of summer camp during the 2020 season, and the risk is your health, some people are going to be much more willing to take that risk than others. Right. And it's directly tied to where they are at in their careers and their compensation. And we're fooling ourselves if we don't recognize that. Yeah, that's that's a huge part of this. I mean, I've seen minor league players talking about, okay, well, what if what if they do call me and there is a a chance for me to go be part of this player pool? Do I do it? Do I not do it? Because there's sort of that back and forth between the risk to my own health and potential future career. But if you don't go, then you're risking your career entirely with that choice as well. So whether it's a guy that's already in that mix or somebody that just feels like they don't have the means to create another option for themselves, it's you're right. It's a very unbalanced scale when you're looking at what optional means for these guys. And that that becomes such a, a larger conversation, right, about, about how these guys are compensated and when that starts in the whole minor league structure and all those things, which I know you and I both care very much about, but we don't have time for all of that tonight. But yeah, it does. It does make this whole thing feel a little less I mean, we like to say that they have the freedom to choose what they're going to do, (laughs) which they do, but the consequences of that choice are very different depending on what their personal circumstances are. Totally. I thought the story off Twitter today that really just like made this one hit home for me came out of the Brewers camp. Uh, Tom Hodricourt had a tweet a while back that was basically like Brock Holt talking about how his wife is pregnant but he said he couldn't even consider opting out because he felt like if he sat out, his career might be over. Mm. And, yeah. I, you know, for a Brock Holt, opting out is not an option. Yeah. <laughs> if he wants to play baseball in 2021 or 2022, this is his make or break season. And that's wild. I, yeah. I don't know. I, d- I don't even know how to react to that except to say that we are fooling ourselves if we think that all of these players can make the exact same decision. Um, 
along those lines, the other thing that I really wanted to talk about here, you know, you mentioned players needing to trust each other and really Mm -hmm. needing to make sure that they were able to trust the protocols and trust the process. That was one of Joe Madden's favorite things when he was in Chicago, trust the process, which I found it kind of ironic when the Angels practiced and I was like, trust the process, except the <laughs> anyway. I, I'm, I don't know if Joe Madden made that decision. So I don't want to hang that one on Joe. Right, um, right. But, you know, in Cleveland, Fran Mill Reyes, it came out, went to a July 4th party where there were people without masks. And mm. Terry Francona told him to stay home. And he's <laughs> quarantining right now. And he's not in trouble. Like, Tito was really generous about it. He wasn't like you're in trouble, you're being penalized or anything like that. He was just like, you can't be around the team for two weeks because of this party. And I kind of feel like we're going to see which clubs have that leadership and that decision-making ability and which do not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And I think, I, I think that that's the kind of challenge a lot of managers in the game right now have never had to deal with, right? And by that, I mean, there are not a lot of Terry Franconas in no. the game right now. And there are a lot of guys who are relatively new to this. There are a lot of guys who are fresh out of their playing careers. There are a lot of guys who haven't really had to handle that sort of dynamic. I mean, nobody has with this exact dynamic, right? But making that kind of tough call and doing it as the guy in charge and not as the guy who's trying to get his players to like him is a very different scenario than a lot of these managers have ever been in before. And, you know, I will say (laughs) this is sort of a rabbit trail, but it'll, it'll connect in a minute. Um, Mike Matheny was not particularly impressive on this front when he was in St. Louis, not obviously with coronavirus, but just in the ability to kind of be that guy, but also maintain a good relationship with players. I've been, actually impressed by the things I've heard from him in regards to how they're handling this situation in Kansas City. It was it also came out a few days ago that he actually had tested positive for COVID-19 and and didn't really have a battle with symptoms or anything like that. But taking it seriously on that front, wearing a mask in, uh, you know, press conferences, even if they're happening on Zoom, apparently. So taking it seriously in that light and, and talking about how it's just become second nature for him to leave his house house with a mask and, and those kinds of things. It's someone like that that I I was a little surprised to see coming out as strongly as he appeared to be, at least publicly. And uh, I appreciated that coming from maybe a a less positive perspective (laughs) on how he would handle something like this from from his years um, at the helm in St. Louis. So, you know, the good news is even those guys at their the stage of their lives and their careers can learn some things and maybe do it better the next time. So I do think it will be interesting to see how individual managers handle it. I know Joe Madden was sort of caught up in the Bob Nightingale drama a couple of days ago with a quote that didn't end up being the thing he meant at all about the same concept of guys having to to trust each other. And, and if you don't feel like you can play by the rules, then you should go home and, I mean, it's just, it's so much uncharted territory that we'll get a whole new perspective on who these managers are in how it relates to their, their people skills and their management skills, not necessarily their baseball strategy. Yeah. uh, You're going to get another shout out to Mike Matheny from me, which I mean, (laughs) look, he was my favorite Cardinals manager. I'm, I, I really enjoyed his time. <laughs> That's, the, fair. The That's fair. That's fair. The Cubs fan. Uh, but we don't need to get into that today. But I, I agree. I think what he's done with the Royals has been really outstanding. And, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before the show. But the players who are going out of their way to wear a mask when they're mm, yeah. on the field, when they're in front of a camera, showing fans themselves in a mask in a moment where they don't have to be, I think it's really important. And I sort of surprised myself on this this week because I really didn't think that would matter that much to me. Um, I, 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 I've been sort of, you know, walking around Chicago, I would say that like 60 to 70% of people in my neighborhood are wearing a mask. The rest are wearing a mask in a store mostly. In a store, it's probably closer to 80 or 90%, but it's not 100%. It's one of those things that 
I'm wearing a mask. I can't make other people wear a mask. I've not tried too hard to, I didn't think it mattered who wore a mask and who didn't. And then I saw Anthony Rizzo wearing a mask, walking to his car and this girl, this is on Twitter. I didn't see it in person, but um, this girl like waves at him and yells like, Hey, Anthony. And he just kind of like very subtly points to his mask. He's like, where's your mask? And she's like, I know, I know. And he's like, you need to wear a mask. And he walks to his car. And I was like, that girl's going to wear a mask tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, it really does matter what these players are doing. Like the pictures of Mike Trout playing baseball in a mask. Fernando yeah. Tatis doing press conferences in a mask. Sean Doolittle doing press conferences in a mask. David Ross in a mask on the field talking to his players. I think this matters. I think people see them and they're like, oh, well, they're wearing a mask. I can too. And I really didn't think it would. I'm not a big celebrity culture person. I don't wear a mask because my favorite movie star is. Mm-hmm. But that affected me watching them set an example. And I just props to all of the managers and players who are making that decision and being very public about it. Yeah, you know, I think as much as anything, my take on that, and I, I sort of I sort of hoped that this would happen for, you know, a couple of weeks now, but I didn't really want to get in the mask debate. So I haven't right. said anything about it. But I do think that it matters when you see something from someone that you admire, because then it takes away the awkwardness. It takes away the, oh, is someone going to look at me weird if I'm wearing a mask or is someone going to yell at me and try to debate whether I should be wearing it or not. And, you know, if someone that you look up to, whether it's celebrity status or just someone in your life that decides to do this thing that you're questioning, it makes it a lot easier for them to you for you then to make that same decision. So I've wondered for the last couple of weeks, man, if there would just be these visuals, right, of baseball players, of basketball players, of hockey players, of all these athletes who are trying to get back to their sport, seeing them in a mask, making it feel less uncomfortable or abnormal, if it would sort of change the dynamic from this very hot button political debate to just this thing that we can do kind of for each other and not make a big deal out of it. So I've thought the same thing and seeing some of these images coming out of of the various camps with guys with their masks on and, and guys sharing it on social media and that kind of thing, just to make it feel like it's really not that big of a deal. Right. <laughs> we can all play along and it doesn't have to be the end of the world. And maybe it can help us get a handle on this so that we can actually have baseball. We can actually get fans back in stadiums, which, which is a whole nother topic. Cause apparently that's a thing teams are trying <laughs> to figure out right now. But nonetheless, as far as the masks go, I agree. I, To me, it's not a huge deal, but I do think that that kind of celebrity culture thing, as well as just getting that image in your mind of seeing something that we are not used to and seeing it all over and seeing it in our favorite places takes away some of the stigma about it. And I don't know, maybe maybe that will help and maybe that'll be part of what (laughs) part of what helps more than just sports get a handle on this whole pandemic scenario. I do want to talk a little bit, assuming that we actually get to opening weekend (laughs) for baseball, which at this point is still very much uh, debatable. However, I will say because this is just the very first thing and maybe because it went so badly, they'll work a little harder to get a handle on things now. I my my feeling today is that we will actually play baseball at some point. That's been uh, a roller coaster of we will, we won't for about three months now. So next week, it might be totally different. But assuming we get to opening weekend, assuming we play actual baseball, what do you make of the schedule that was announced? I mean, because of the the time frame, because of trying to keep everything a little more regional, I mean, unless you play in the West, then you're still traveling all over the place. But nonetheless, 40 division games, 20 games uh, against the American League opposite. So for us, the the AL Central teams, it's interesting to see how that schedule worked out. Not as balanced as perhaps it could have been, but what do you make of the schedule that that was announced this week? So this schedule begs the question for me of how much does home field advantage matter and what does it really mean? 
People in Chicago have tended to believe for a long time that the reason home field advantage matters for the Cubs is that we pack Wrigley Field every game and you're going to have a ton of screaming Cubs fans there. Mm -hmm. Granted, we do that in Milwaukee too, so I'm not entirely (laughs) sure that that's like a unique to Chicago thing. I actually think home field advantage probably has to do more with you slept in your own bed, you went to your normal coffee shop in the morning, you showed up at the place you know, you had your clubhouse and your music and like all the things that you're used to. Yeah. And so some of these seven, three splits within the division, I think could be a bigger impact, particularly in a shortened season than people have really given them credit for. And I think where they fall is interesting, right? So I think the Cardinals play seven at Wrigley. The Cubs play three at Bush. The Cubs play seven at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati and the Reds play three at Wrigley. Those could be really big differences, right? Like if, you have an actual home field advantage and those three Mm -hmm. teams are kind of fighting it out. The team that might have the most home games could, that could be the difference in a division that's going to be super tight. Yeah. And because it's so limited as far as the number of games, that tight division, look, this was probably already going to be a really interesting race in the NL central. Maybe not with the pirates, but you know, (laughs) everyone else (laughs) playing along was going to make it interesting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but with 60 games, all of a sudden, boy, there's there's not a lot of margin for error. So for the Cardinals, yes, playing seven games at Wrigley, um, playing seven games at Miller Park, but they get the Reds seven times at home. So then you start looking at that and going, okay, traditionally they play better here or they play better there. Now, as far as the Brewers are concerned, the Cardinals play better (laughs) against the Brewers at Miller Park. So maybe that's going to work out for them. But it does just condense that timeline so much that you look at any one of those uh, sort of season series between two of those teams. And man, that could be the difference maker, not just between winning the division, but in, you know, finishing third or fourth in the division, because there's just not enough time to really make up a lot of difference there. It will be interesting too seeing some of these American League teams, uh, because they're in the Central, it's not anyone that we haven't really had a chance to see in a long time. But you know, it will be interesting to, to see some of that. Um, I do think that the the travel is going to be interesting, perhaps more so in the other divisions. That's one unique thing about the Central is that kind of got same time zone, same basic feel in the Midwest. Not a lot of uh, those long trips that some of the other divisions are going to have working against them. So as long as they can kind of sort out the actual safety protocols for the travel, which again, at this point, not impressed so far with what they've been able to do, but you know, maybe they'll figure it out by that, that first road trip. And that I wonder how much that will feel like an advantage because they're not dealing with the same kind of travel that they usually have to. Yeah. The travel implications here are really interesting. I actually think that the way geographically everything is split up in terms of the strength of schedule and who people play is also just super intriguing. I, yeah. I sort of feel like the NL Central won this one. Right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not just saying that because I'm a Cubs fan. Like, first of all, the NL Central is a super, there's a lot of parity in the division, right? Yeah. The Cubs, Cardinals, Reds, and Brewers are all very similar teams that are sort of like, they can be great. They can mess up. They all sort of like live in that same zone of predictions. That's why Pakoda and Fangraphs and all of those are like, oh, yeah, these teams are all going to finish within one game of each other, which probably <laughs> won't happen. But yeah. that just indicates that they're on paper teams that would perform similarly. So you have yep. a really good but parity wise, like similar division. And they're playing one of the worst divisions in baseball. I'm, I'm, right. I'm really sorry <laughs> to my AL Central friends, but like, I guess it's possible the White Sox show up this year. The Tigers are not good. The Royals yeah. are not good. Yeah, <laughs> the Twins are good. Like, I, I just <laughs> the AL Central is just not a place that you go to be like, yes, these are these are the powerhouse teams. So the Cubs basically traded the AL East. For the AL Central, which is a huge yep. win. You no longer yep. have to play the mm-hmm. Yankees or the Red Sox or the Rays. You get to, you know, hang around with the Tigers and the Royals for a bit. 
they definitely have a distance travel advantage. I think MLB Network broke this down on their schedule show where they showed that the teams that are going to travel the least are the Cubs and the Cardinals and the White Sox. That could be a huge advantage going into a postseason where some teams have really had to beat up on much stronger competition. Yeah. And I just think the NL East has a really, has a much tougher road than the NL Central does. I think the NL West has a much tougher road Mm -hmm. than the NL Central does. And you're going to have a team sitting in the Central that if they can get hot right around the end of September, could really make a push in the postseason and just blow some people away. Yeah, I agree. And I think the uniqueness of this all-out sprint kind of season, as far as baseball is concerned, is going to highlight those teams that can get hot, it's also going to really magnify the opportunities to take advantage of those situations that are perhaps more positive (laughs) in the central than they are in other places, right? Because it's easy to look at this, like you said, on paper and go, oh, okay, this should be a thing they can handle. But from, from the Cardinals perspective, and I think you would agree, at least last year for the Cubs, too many times that opportunity was basically handed to them (laughs) and they did nothing with it. So that's the real challenge is being in a position after this very abbreviated training camp to then go into the season without a whole lot of lag in getting things up and going, which is also going to be difficult because to really circle back to where we started, if there's someone who ends up with a positive test, it's going to throw everything off. What it's If it's somebody in your starting rotation, then you have to have this adaptability that's going to be a completely different challenge than any of these teams have ever faced before. So that opportunity could go away very quickly if they don't take full advantage of it in whatever the brief moment of time it's there for them to take. Well, and this is one of those things. I mean, last year with the Cubs, and this was the bane of my existence, they should not win on the road. Yeah. It saved their life. I I don't remember what the exact numbers are because I did not pull them up before the start of this show. But I looked at this in late September for a piece. And if you looked at the Cubs at home, they were basically like the Dodgers or the Astros. They could hold the, the stats and the winning percentage looked the same as one of the best teams in the division. And on the road, yeah. they were the Marlins. And I am not joking. Like, that's how big their home road splits were. So the difference between the Cubs being in the postseason last year and not was 10 games on the road. It wasn't even, you know, like every, like I'm sure that the Cardinals fans listening to this podcast want to to point to that sweep in September in Mm -hmm. Chicago, but it was actually like at any point in the season, 10 games on the road. Right. (laughs) Um, And it was frustrating to watch as Cubs fans. Andy Cruz Vanasek, who is my co host on Cup of Cubby Blue, And I used to joke, like, can they just wear the home uniforms on the road? (laughs) Maybe that will work. What if we, like, bring some Wrigley dirt to (laughs) Pittsburgh? Will that fix it? And obviously no. But um, I think they did actually try the uniform thing at one point. They tried to, like, just hang their uniforms in the the visiting Mm, clubhouses. It was the same. Like, oh my God, we have reached we have reached the worst part of the season. (laughs) The most interesting thing about this shortened season to me, though, was something I read earlier today, and I am 80% sure that this quote was attributed to Ryan Braun. And I hate that it was attributed to Ryan Braun because that's, if there's one thing Cubs and Cardinals fans can agree on, it's that we don't want to attribute anything good to Ryan Braun. Agreed. Um, (laughs) But I believe he told a reporter that no team will be mathematically eliminated by September this year. That's wild. It's impossible. (laughs) That's insane. That's crazy. September is yeah, going to be really the crazy. first time in baseball history that there is a month left in the season and everybody has a shot. Mm-hmm. That's wild. That's that's such a great way to highlight the sort of absurd nature of this 60-game season, at least as it pertains to baseball, right? This is not anything new for other teams, for other sports, rather, that have much shorter schedules. But for baseball, this is just so unheard of that – it's wild to think that. And I think these teams that were not supposed to be good this year are at a distinctly more significant advantage because of just the fact that it's kind of like the postseason only expanded, right? In that 
uh, a team that's not really that great can get on a run and all of a sudden you're like, how did this team win anything? <laughs> I know that because the Cardinals did it in 2006 when they had no business beating the Tigers. So those, those postseason teams that get on a run and you're like, I don't know how this happened, but here we are. I feel like there are probably going to be some teams, maybe not the teams that are real bad. Like I still question the Pirates being relevant, <laughs> but there are going to be some teams that are in more in the mix than anyone could ever have imagined simply because everything's so condensed and it's going to be so close. There's just not enough time for them to fall as far behind. So it could get very interesting in the month of September, that's for sure. So two things. One, I apologize for the bang out my window. That was a firework being lit off on <laughs> July 7th for reasons uh -huh. in Chicago. Oh, I've seen a couple out my window while we're doing this. That's so who knows? So, I, don't, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Tara's going to be able to clean that up or not. I apologize <laughs> for that one. Um, yeah, so the, I don't know, like the Orioles and the Pirates are both probably kind of out, even though right. it's a shortened season, but who knows? Weirder stuff has happened. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else kind of has a shot. And the thing that I can't yeah. really wrap my head around is, is this a season that is advantage older players or younger players? Mm. So if you're, and I'll, I'll take a Cardinal uh, as my example here. Like if you're a Yadier Molina and you're getting a little older and you play catcher and that's a hard position to play 150 games at. He doesn't have to play 150 games. Right. He has to play like 55. I would take yeah. Molina all out at 55 games without having to worry about getting hurt. Yeah. If you're yeah, a John Lester and you know how to pace yourself over 50 games and like 10 right. starts, that's kind of sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. And it's such an interesting element of this because I, I'm laughing as you're saying that about Molina because the the quote from the last couple of years is that at one point, I don't know, I think three seasons ago, it was a Mike Matheny thing and there was a tussle between them that only we only knew about because Yadi takes all things to Instagram. <laughs> and I kind of love it, uh, although I understand why everyone else hates it. But he said something about how he trains for 175 games a year or something like that. And, you know, it's just kind of that thing that you're like, okay, all right. <laughs> but it's also that mentality that allows him to do what he does and to be, to have the longevity that he has. So then when you cut that down to 60 games, I was laughing because there've already been all these conversations about is any other catcher actually going to start a game for the Cardinals this year? Because, I can't imagine a scenario where Yachty's not like, no, I got this <laughs> uh, because it's only 60 games. So yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch some of those things develop. But I do think you're right. I think there is there is in that sense an advantage for some of these guys that maybe uh, break down a bit over the course of a longer season. I also think that the experience in unknown situations is going to be valuable for these older players who maybe have kind of been there, done that in enough different scenarios that they can just go out and play as opposed to some young guys who might be a little thrown off by this, but the really young guys aren't going to know anything else. <laughs> so maybe they're at the advantage of just kind of being wide eyed and bushy tailed and, and not knowing how absolutely insane this is to some degree. So yeah, that will be a fascinating piece of the puzzle to watch for sure. I will also be interested to see kind of the same conversation, a guy like David Ross in his first oh, year. I mean, no, no time to learn uh, other than a season like no one has ever experienced before. Right. But that sort of pressure, I don't know if there's more pressure or less pressure on him now because the expectations of this entire season have gone out the window. So I know David Ross is a first-year manager. I actually think he's super unique in this role. I, I tend to think of him as more established than like Aaron Boone was when he took over the Yankees or Dave Roberts was when he took over the Dodgers. And part of that has to do with him being a backup catcher for so long. He spent yeah. so many years in team meetings, going through what the game plan was. And one of my favorite David Ross stories uh, comes from the forward to his book teammate, which I understand if Cardinals people didn't read the whole book, but <laughs> you may want to read the forward because it's really interesting in terms of perspective on why 
David Ross is the manager of the Cubs right now. When he was a backup catcher in Boston, he got invited to the playoff team meetings to do some planning. And Theo and Jed were both just blown away at how outspoken and smart he was about his team. Mm. And he's literally like, Jason Veritek is there saying, I think we should do da-da-da-da-da. And David Ross is like, actually, no, because three years ago when <laughs> I pitched that guy. And if you imagine 2013 and David Ross speaking up, I guess this wasn't 2013. It might have been, I might have the year wrong. Anyway, you imagine the year and you imagine David Ross speaking up to like Jason Veritek. Right. That is, what? <laughs> like that is <laughs> not supposed to happen, Right. And they literally at that time kind of marked it. And they were like, we should keep an eye on this guy. I think this might have been his first stint with the Red Sox, not the second. Anyway, I'm getting the years wrong. But the point remains that Theo Epstein wrote this forward. And if you read it three years ago, you knew David Ross was the manager of the future for the Cubs. Mm. Because it is very obvious that Theo had his sights on Ross as a managerial candidate. And I actually think that Ross will probably be not only fine in a weird season, but he'll thrive on it he doesn't know any better yeah he's been around the game forever he already knows what he wants to do and how he wants to get there and he doesn't have a game plan that's going to get disrupted i actually Mm. worry more about a manager like a joe madden who has this whole theory about the process of 162 games and what it's supposed to look like and breaking it up with pajama trips and i think that is going to be a harder mentality for this new environment yeah. Then a guy who's like, well, it's my first time. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I just saw a quote before we started recording. I don't remember it exactly. It was on Twitter from Mike Schilt, basically talking about how confident he felt in his team's ability to adapt. And that's going to start from the manager on down, right? In their ability to kind of take this season for what it is and roll with the punches and change things when they have to change things and figure out what to do at that point. So those are going to be the teams. Those are going to be the managers who can influence their teams that I think will be successful in this season. Again, assuming, (laughs) assuming they actually play most of this season, but that will be the, I I agree. I think those will be the teams that find themselves at least I want to see the most successful, but we all know there's, there's some luck involved in turning a season into a success story, but they'll be the most capable of finding their way through something that is otherwise mostly just chaos. <laughs> I mean, let's all remind ourselves that the Nationals were terrible at the start of last season. Right. If the Nationals right. <laughs> had a 60-game season last year, they would not have won the World Series. I watched that team in the middle of April play the Giants, and it's one of the worst games I've ever seen <laughs> Yeah, they uh, that story ended up all right for them. <laughs> yeah, they wound up fine. But on a yeah. game sprint, the Nationals definitely would right. have a ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what's so strange about all of this. And um, hopefully we get a chance to see how it plays out. Okay, I have kept you long enough. But before we wrap things up, we always do a segment that we call the chirp of the week. Normally Alex does it and he's way better at this stuff, but I decided since we're talking about the schedule and what is to come, I wanted to make note of the opening series for the Cardinals because they're playing the Pirates. They're also playing at home, which they haven't done in several years, opened the season at home. It's the first time they have opened the season against the Pirates since 2009, which was also in St. Louis. That was Adam Wainwright's first official career home opener. Official because he had actually started the year before, but that game was wiped out by rain after three innings, so it didn't count. So that was his first official career home opener start, which seems wild to me because I feel like Adam Wainwright has been around for forever. Then Jason Mott ended up giving up four runs in the ninth inning, <laughs> capped off by a an RBI base hit to left field by Jack Wilson, who spent parts of nine seasons with the Pirates, and the Cardinals lost the game 6-4. to four. So <laughs> that was the fate of the last time the Cardinals opened the season against the Pirates at home. I feel like this year's Pirates again. I keep up, this is the the show where I just keep bragging on the Pirates, but I'm just not impressed at this point. So maybe the the fate will be different. And if the Cardinals want to get off to a good start, playing the Pirates at home feels like a good way to start it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I don't actually know what the Cubs' results against the Brewers were. 
the first times that they played the Brewers. The, the Cubs will open their season against the Brewers in 2020. I, I actually don't know if it's at Wrigley or if it's at Miller Park. It doesn't really matter. We refer <laughs> to Miller Park as Wrigley North. And so I'm, I'm going to actually tell a little story about the Brewers that is my favorite thing that I, I've been marking the last few years. And I do an article about it every time it happens. But I, about three years ago, the Brewers decided that they needed to have a Wisconsin residents only sale for their tickets. Mm, only yeah. Tickets. And my favorite part of this is so they, they open ticket sales in February or whatever, and you're only allowed to go buy them at the box office if you have a Wisconsin address and ID. Mm. But every year when that first game happens, if you go on StubHub, those tickets are like $7. <laughs> so shout out to the Brewers who won't have to worry about their $7 StubHub tickets this year, whether <laughs> the game is in Miller Park or Wrigley Field. Um, and I and I hope they're doing okay because I know that that's I know that that's a really important game for them to to have their whole Wisconsin resident only thing. You know the Brewers. Can I just say I feel kind of bad for the Brewers because they're not really a National League Central team, <laughs> and and they want to be a rival so bad. I don't know if this happens yeah. with Cardinals fans too, but with Cubs fans, they're always like, "We're your rival," and I'm like, "But you're not." Like you, you've been here a few years and we play you sometimes and we sell out your stadium. And I just, I feel like they really want to be a rival and they just haven't been able to figure it out yet. So here's hoping they yeah. have a better time without fans in the stands. There's a little bit of little brother syndrome. I think that yeah. happens with the brewers and look, I have some, some, I know some fine people who are lovely humans that are also somehow brewers fans. <laughs> But uh, there is definitely a weird dynamic between the Brewers and particularly, I think, the, the Cubs and the Cardinals in the division trying to be that third team, right? Trying to be the equal. And I will give credit where it's due. They have put some solid teams on the field in the last few years. The Cardinals had to get through the Brewers the last time they went to the World Series. And and <laughs> that kind of ruined the, the whole we're going to become a dynasty thing for the brewers but you know <laughs> it happens um so yeah i get it and it's uh it's always it's always frustrating it's almost more frustrating to lose to the brewers <laughs> because of that you know what the reaction is going to be at this point but you know they they uh i went to a brewers game in milwaukee for the first time last season it had nothing to do with the cardinals i was in town for work and we happened to have the night off and went to a game and it was a very unique experience compared to other games that I've been to. And I, I always love that. I love getting a feel for kind of what the, the local vibe is in all, all of these rival cities. And uh, it was interesting. I wasn't there, obviously, for a, a Brewers-Cardinals game, so I don't quite know what that dynamic is like. But I do hear a lot from my Cubs fan friends about the... Uh, the perception of the Brewers among Cubs fans. So not an uncommon conversation as far as what you've said so far. What's funny about that is that I've only been to Bush Stadium once and I went for a Brewers Cardinals game. Okay. And so I did get a feel for how like I, I had a I had a healthy appreciation for the way St. Louis fans reacted to particular players and plays and right. I I, I, I can't really say that I like bonded with St. Louis fans because <laughs> I'm still a Cubs fan, but I didn't go in Cubs gear because I'm not that girl. I just went like a plain this, sundress. This is why we can be friends. <laughs> I didn't wear a hat or anything. I bought a souvenir for a Cardinals fan friend of mine. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. The Brewers, they've been good. Don't get me wrong. They've been yeah. better than the Cubs the last couple of years, which is something that is tearing away at my soul. But I, <laughs> it's just not a rivalry, you guys. It's just not. Yeah. Sorry. It's okay. It does. They don't all have to be rivalries. <laughs> You can, they, they need a rival though. I think that's the problem is they don't really have pirates. one. <laughs> yeah. <The pirates laughs> Maybe that's what it is. There you, there you go. There you go. Well, we'll see how all of that plays out. Your chirp of the week, the Cardinals playing the Pirates for the first time at home to open the season since 2009. Hopefully there's a better fate for your, uh, your St. Louis Cardinals. If you're listening to this podcast, although our Cubs friends probably will not be wishing for that same fate 
So, you know, it happens. That, that is a rivalry worth talking about. Cubs versus Cardinals, one of the best in baseball. And I'm glad that it stays that way. Uh, And I'm also glad that it can be friendly. So thank you for (laughs) hanging out with me, talking through all of this mess. And I hope that we actually get to see it all play out. And I hope that it goes better than the first week did. And then we can talk more about it later. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining me tonight. If people are interested presumably to keep tabs on the Cubs as, as the rivals of the Cardinals. Where can they find you and your work? Uh, I write for Bleed Cubby Blue, which is the SB Nation Cubs fan site. You can find me at BCB underscore Sarah. And you can find a link to my podcast and all of our Cubs updates and banter at, at Cup of Cubby Blue on Twitter. And I can confirm that if you're looking for a Cubs fan friend to follow, Sarah is a great choice. (laughs) So (laughs) she will uh, entertain you and keep you updated. And, you know, we can have fun conversations like this without uh, getting too far in the weeds with the rivalry. Although once the season actually starts, we'll see how that goes. I was just talking (laughs) to my (laughs) Cubs fan boyfriend about watching Uh, the first Cubs Cardinal series together. And it will be the first time that we've watched baseball together because baseball hasn't happened in 17 years. (laughs) And uh, I was like, that sounds great. Also, it kind of sounds awful. I have no idea how this is going to go for us. (laughs) So we'll see. But as far as Sarah is concerned, always a good time to chat with you. And uh, I think that'll do it for tonight. So Alex will hopefully be back with me next week. And hopefully we have more good news to talk about as opposed to just complicated chaos. So until then, I'm Dara. She's Sarah. Alex will be back. We'll see you then.